The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Okay, what I plan to do is to um, begin to lecture on Galatians 1, verse 1, and in the course of some of the uh, material, um, refer to the uh, chapter that you were supposed to read for today, a copy of which I also forgot to bring, but uh, I may have to borrow one of yours uh, as we move on. (coughs) Incidentally, uh, quite a few of you in your papers had specific questions that you mentioned in the paper, and some of them would be very appropriate to bring up in class as part of our general discussion. So uh, if there's anything that um, um, you know was a question in your mind as you read, um, please feel free to um, mention that, and um, we'll try to work it into whatever we're doing. The uh, outline that I have just provided is in effect, and I'm not saying that we're going to go through all of this or even that we're going to follow it in precisely this order. We may or we may not, just depends how the, uh, the rest of the classes develop. But it's basically a lecture of, you know, my exposition of the, of the letter. And uh, it's not an outline of the letter so much, although it is that in part, but in, in certain portions uh, it is really an outline of the way that I that I'm trying to communicate what I think the meaning of the passage may be. Just some preliminaries. And I think I may have uh, commented on this before, but scientists sometimes do their own research uh, using what some people might call definition by negation it is a, uh, a technique that uh, probably all of us use, uh, some more consciously than others. But I think prob- probably everyone by experience has learned that if you want to communicate something clearly, uh, frequently you have to uh, make very explicit uh, what it is that you're not saying. Sometimes that's absolutely necessary. Other times it may not be necessary, but it turns out to be a very effective way of getting across uh, what's in mind. And for this to work out, to to work uh, well, what you need to do is to oppose whatever it is that you're trying to say to things that are as closely related to it as possible so that the very things that are uh, that have a pot- potential for blurring, for being misunderstood simply because they're very similar, uh, then you explicitly say, I do not mean this and I do not mean that, I, I mean this, you see, and, and then you are, by, by negating, you're defining very clearly and, and very explicitly the boundaries of, uh, of that which you're really interested in. Well, Gathering 
items that are similar to the object of study with a view to identifying uh, those things which differentiate the one from the other. So the distinguishing features, that's what I'm talking about. And I mentioned that because when you look at the introduction uh, to Galatians, it is very helpful sometimes to compare what you find in this introduction with what you find in the introductions of ancient letters more generally. Or you can narrow the scope of your investigation here and compare Galatians, the introduction to Galatians, with those of other New Testament letters, especially those written by Paul himself. And um, as we move into the, um, the, the text of verses 1 through uh, 10, I want to pay close attention to both the similarities and the differences among the various introductions in the Pauline letters. Now, in the case of Galatians, the, um, the first 10 verses uh, clearly, that section clearly divides itself into two parts. The opening, uh, you might call that the greeting or the address or the salutation, whatever, but it, it's the opening of the letter. And then secondly, the occasion for writing or the introduction proper, I suppose, the occasion for writing. Uh, so verses 1 through 5, the opening, 6 through 10, the, um, the occasion. Now, if you, if you look at the other letters of Paul, you find a very, very similar division in uh, a number of them. For example, in Romans 1, you have a rather lengthy opening, verses 1 through 7, which contains the, uh, the salutation as part of it, but that's hardly the whole, the whole of it. And then beginning with verse 8 and going through verse 17, you have a, a, also a lengthy discussion of um, you know, what, what has, what's leading me to write this letter, a little bit about the aims of, uh, of the writing and so on. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, the first three verses, an opening, verses 4 through 9, the occasion, and so on. So in that respect, in terms of the general structure of, of these uh, first uh, 10 verses, nothing particularly unusual uh, as such. But now let's come to the opening in your outline, and you'll notice that I have divided that into three sections. Uh, the greeting proper, which is actually in verse 3, so I'm not following this verse by verse. Then an affirmation of apostolic authority, which is the very beginning of, of the opening. And then an affirmation of the gospel of grace in verses 4 to 5. By the way, <coughs> although this isn't the primary intention, there are some portions of, of the way that I am outlining my lectures here that uh, could be useful sometimes in sermon preparation if, if you're interested in, in a sermon that, uh, that seeks to, um, to expound a, a whole paragraph. Um, normally, if, if you structure your sermon in a way that follows sequentially the text, um, that may not be 
as effective a way of communicating your understanding of the passage uh, as if as if your sermon outline deliberately brings out by the very structuring of, of your sermon you see brings out what you think is the primary focus of the uh, of the passage now that that depends on the passage you know there, there are some uh, portions of uh, scripture that lend themselves very easily to a sequential you can divide something into two or three or four parts following sequentially the argument of the paragraph and it works very well but um, uh, there are other times when it does not work as well and there are times when even though it may work well there's a certain pedagogical value in, in kind of changing things around because now you're, you're getting people to think about the passage in a, in a, uh, in a different way and that helps to highlight things that otherwise might uh, be ignored. Anyway, the opening of uh, most letters in Paul are very crisp, as you know. They consist of one or two verses. And the only exceptions are Galatians and Romans. In, in both of these letters, uh, Paul's concerns are set out uh, straight away. It isn't simply a matter of a greeting or, or of identifying the author and the recipients. Uh, more is going on here. Uh, you have Paul already formulating some of the issues that are of concern to him. All right, the greeting proper in verse 3. Just a comment, first of all, about its position. What is it doing here? Uh, because it's in the middle of the paragraph. That is unusual. Remember, I'm keep, I keep asking the question, how, what are the distinguishing features of, of the text here? In every other instance, even in Romans, which is the closest to it in terms of, uh, of this expanded uh, character, in every other instance, even in Romans, Paul places the greeting at the very end of this opening paragraph. Here, it's, it's right in the middle. And then he goes on to extend the opening beyond the greeting. So that even without a syntactical break, he proceeds to, the, to uh, describe the work of Christ. Now, um, I, I bring that up simply to call to your attention now, but uh, there's more to it than that, because when we get to verses 4 to 5, uh, we shall see that... Um, that material in verses 4 and 5 is not you know, a mere addition for stylistic effect or for rhetorical purposes. Uh, those verses zero in on the fundamental motif of the epistle. And uh, without doubt, there's something deliberate about uh, bringing that up at the end of the paragraph. With regard to the form of the greeting, uh, nothing much uh, needs to be said here uh, because, um, you know, whatever you can say about this is mentioned in every commentary of every Pauline epistle that you can think of, uh, namely that uh, the wish, grace, and peace be to you, charis humin kai arene, becomes really a standardized uh, Christian formula. It reflects a synthesis of what would be the normal Hebrew greeting, Shalom, Irene, 
a synthesis of a, of a typical Hebrew greeting with, um, a, I guess you have to call it a Christianized version of the normal Hellenistic uh, epistolary greeting. Now, it's not uh, universal, but it, it's standard. I mean, it, this is what you find most of the time, as in James chapter 1, verse 1, where you have the infinitive of the verb chairo. <coughs> and uh, the use of the verb chairo in, in this infinitival form becomes the... Um, just a standard way of uh, greeting someone in, at the beginning of the letter. Not the only one, but it's, it's uh, probably the most frequently occurring one. Now I said, you have a synthesis of a Hebrew and a Hellenistic form, but in, in the case of the Hellenistic form, it is Christianized because it is in Chiron. It's, it's the actual noun Charis, which now calls attention to a particular theological point of, uh, of the Christian gospel. The only other thing that um, needs to be mentioned here is that <coughs> the, um, if you take the greeting as a whole, not only the charisumin kaireni, but also what follows, apotheupatrosemon kaikuriu yesu christu, and from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, that identical formula is found in uh, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, probably 2nd Thessalonians, although in 2nd Thessalonians uh, there's a possible textual omission of, uh, of the pronoun, and then also Philemon. However, it is worth um, noting, not that this has great uh, weight but or significance, but it may be worth keeping in mind, that there is some significant textual evidence here in Galatians for the different order, patros kaikuriohemon. Uh, so from God, uh, our from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And the uh, decision there actually is not uh, real easy. Um, but I suspect that the, what, what the UBS and the Nestle Allen text have is uh, indeed the uh, stronger uh, text. <coughs> now, before we move on, I do want to say something about the general significance of the greeting here. And uh, <coughs> a couple of things. One, uh, don't be misled by the fact that this is a formulaic uh, greeting. It's a formula, and when you identify something as a formula, the tendency is to say, well, okay, so that's the way you do it, that's why it's here, and then you don't pay too much attention to it, and uh, that's, that's kind of a reasonable assumption. You don't want to make too much of something that is a standard way of saying things. However, um, we don't want to minimize the content of what is being communicated here either. Uh, the words constitute a wish and a prayer for God's people. 
namely their continued, uh, not, not just continued, but enhanced enjoyment of the salvation they have received. Uh, certainly the term charis uh, doesn't lose its distinctive reference to the saving grace manifested in Christ just because he happens to be part of the greeting. Uh, while Irene is, uh, speaks of far more than personal tranquility, what's in view here, uh, surely, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises uh, regarding the establishment of God's kingdom of peace and, and uh, welfare. You know, that shalom, this sense of, of welfare that only God can provide and that um, uh, became one of the uh, more significant petitions in Jewish prayers at the time. The other thing that uh, I wanted to uh, call your attention to is that uh, the, the rest of the greeting from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, in spite of the fact that it's a very frequent phrase, um, it really invites reflection. I don't know if you're familiar with an article that uh, Benjamin Warfield wrote uh, just with that title, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ reprinted in, um, in the volume on Biblical and Theological Studies. In that article, Warfield examines the many passages where the two divine names, that is, God the Father on the one hand and the Lord Jesus Christ on the other, where the two divine names are found together in a closely knit conjunction, as he calls it, a closely knit conjunction. And uh, after a rather thorough and you know, characteristically detailed uh, exegesis of the relevant material, Warfield uh, goes on to say, the two persons brought together are not to be sure absolutely identified. They do remain two persons to each of whom severally there may be ascribed activities in which the other does not share but their equalization is absolute. Even though there is no absolute identification, there is absolute equalization. Uh, and short of thoroughgoing identification of persons, the unity expressed by their conjunction seems to be complete. Uh, this is a quotation from page 64. Uh, earlier on page 62, he points out that in all 13 instances of the, of the Pauline greeting, the apostle clear, clearly intends to say the same thing, namely, uh, he is invoking the divine being and only the divine being. Once, in First Thessalonians 1, uh, he, he leaves that to be understood from the nature of the case. Uh, another time in Colossians 1, he names this being simply, simply God the Father. But in the other 11 instances, he gives him the conjunct name. Um, and uh, it, it's an article worth, uh, worth looking at, showing, I think, quite conclusively that um, the way in which Paul routinely links the two names together um, only makes sense if Paul uh, sees the, the, uh, the two persons, uh, these two persons of the Trinity as a, uh, as a total unity, as a total unity. <clears throat> well, uh, any questions on uh, on verse three? 
Let's move on to the second point, uh, the affirmation of, of uh, apostolic authority in verses 1 and 2. Uh, first thing I want to um, call your attention to, because we can uh, deal with this uh, relatively quickly, is the, uh, the implications of verse 2, uh, where Paul names, well, doesn't actually use their names, but refers to uh, all of the brothers. Here is, again, another distinctive of Galatians. Why do we have a specific identification of, of Paul with all the brothers here as part of the uh, greeting? Burton, in his commentary, <coughs> sees very little significance. Uh, he thinks it, all it does, it, it reflects a certain politeness. And uh, Lightfoot uh, seems to take a similar view, um, although when Lightfoot talks about this, he's, he's trying to distinguish his own view from that of some earlier writers uh, who uh, saw the phrase as in some some way fortifying Paul's teaching. <coughs> in other words, and I think Chrysostom does this, uh, he mentions the brothers, because now that gives more authority to what Paul is saying. Whereas Lightfoot, uh, I think correctly, uh, argues that such an appeal would be inconsistent with, uh, with his claim to independence in, in this uh, chapter. Uh, so he sees the um, the clause as an attempt to dismiss to dismiss the item as rapidly as possible in one general expression, um, but that, I, I don't find that convincing either, because you see it, it's true that Paul makes no further mention of these brethren. In fact, he used the first singular throughout the epistle. But uh, Betts, in his commentary, points out that the pantes here is unique. And that, and that factor alone suggests that the epistle comes with the unanimous support of his companions. In any case, uh, we should probably avoid reading too much into the phrase, which neither enhances nor contradicts Paul's emphasis on his apostol apostolic authority. And I think that's a point well worth uh, making. Uh, to mention the, all the brethren there, does not enhance his apostolic authority as such. But neither does it contradict it, just because he, he mentions them. It, it's not that my authority either depends in some way on, on these brethren. But in a sense, it, it is uh, kind of supporting evidence, isn't it, uh, about the, uh, you know, the recognition of his authority. Uh, Fung uh, makes his comment, perhaps the best solution is to regard it as reflecting Paul's desire to indicate to the Galatians that his gospel is no personal idiosyncrasy, but something shared by his colleagues. And I think that's, uh, that's a fair way of putting it. it. It avoids reading too much into the phrase with regard to the question of authority as such. But it also um, precludes the inference that uh, Paul has a message that is opposed even by his close uh, 
uh, companions. Another thing about verse 2 that needs to be noted is the description of the recipients, Thais Ecclesia, Estes Galatias, to the churches of Galatia, which contains no modifiers whatsoever. And that is in striking contrast to the other epistles. Usually Paul acknowledges uh, the special status of those to whom he writes. He normally calls them hagioi, saints. You have that in Romans, Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Uh, in, uh, in the Thessalonian correspondence, he uses the equivalent phrase, entheopatri, in God the Father. That, that obviously makes the same point. The saints or the hagioi are those who are in, that is, in union with God the Father. <coughs> the additional adjective pistoi, faithful or believing, occurs in Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And the Romans includes uh, another phrase, agape tois theou, beloved of God. So you see the, the sheer baldness of the expression in Galatians undoubtedly reflects the uh, rather special and difficult circumstances in which the letter was written. And um, remember the things that are most meaningful, semantically speaking. I'm, I'm talking here uh, in terms not just of linguistics generally, but more specifically of, of so-called information theory, that uh, what is unpredictable, the more unpredictable something is, the more semantic content it carries with it. Uh, if you're used to seeing Paul describing his recipients as saints or faithful or beloved of God or something like that, and now that is missing, something that you expect, which you thought was predictable, because Paul normally does it and it's missing, uh, that has a certain uh, power, a certain impact. And uh, I don't know whether the Galatians had read other letters of Paul that would have made them anticipate such a um, description, but um, at least we know from the other letters that this is uh, not the expected. And uh, it, it definitely reflects something about the distinctiveness of, of Paul's own motivation and, and the occasion uh, that motivates a particular letter. Ready now to go to uh, verse 1 <coughs> and to um, at least acknowledge the polemic, polemical character uh, of verse 1. The very position of the word apostolos, you know, right after the name, Paulos Apostolos, you can catch your breath and he's mentioning his office. Uh, the very position of it may be significant, although the same basic order is found in, in a couple of other letters, several actually. But whether or not you think there's some significance about this particular order, Certainly what follows the word apostolos is uh, definitely uh, significant. Uh, not the second word maybe, but the third is uk. And, and that uk right there bears the polemic at hand. Paul is undoubtedly responding to an accusation here. 
Now, there's some people who um, question that. There's a book by, well, one of the items in, in the, um, the syllabus, um, George Lyons' um, book on autobiographies, he argues that on the basis of the rhetorical character of ancient uh, biographical and autobiographical documents, that um, the, um, the negatives of Galatians need not reflect Paul responding to some kind of opposition enemy of uh, so-called mirror reading where you try to see reflected in the text the situation in the, uh, in the place where, where the letter is going. And um, I think the argument uh, isn't going to work. And in, the, uh, in chapter 4 that you don't have yet of this Pauline exegesis thing, I uh, say a little bit about Lyons and his, um, his thesis. But I, I don't see how uh, one can reasonably deny that when you have this, the only place where this happens, and it is accompanied by other features, particularly in verses 11 and 12, which uh, set forth the thesis of the, uh, of the book, how it can be denied that, that uh, there's some kind of accusation behind this. Machen, you uh, probably now used to make a great deal out of this ook and how important it was uh, if, if you're going to be a faithful exponent of the gospel uh, you better um, include some uh, negativism you just can't uh, can't avoid it and of, of course machin was responding to accusations <laughs> of, from the liberals of his day that he was uh, you know, not enough love or something always being too negative or whatever but Machen in his notes uh, on Galatians says, all definition is by way of exclusion. That's something like what I hadn't talked about before. You cannot possibly say clearly what a thing is without contrasting it with what it is not. Only those who can say no can say yes and amen. Uh, Paul says Machen said no after barely mentioning his name and title. And that word gives the key to the whole epistle. And this same no, incidentally, uh, is what kindled uh, the Reformation. So verse 1 is a uh, polemical uh, statement already. But uh, in addition to that, uh, I have this next uh, point, the, um, the origin of Paul's religion. You know, it's the title of Machen's book as well, but in the prepositional phrase that follows. That's obviously what Paul is talking about here. The whole point of the subsequent uh, clause is the divine origin of Paul's apostleship. By the way, Ignatius, in, in his letter to the Philadelphians at the very beginning, has a comment that, that I, uh, helps us to see that as well. And I think it's important to note the strong contrast between the human and divine. Um, the words now you have first apanthropon, um, and then anthropu, one plural, one singular. But both of them uh, clearly have a qualitative force. And I, I'm not making that point on the basis that, it do, that the word uh, is anarthrous. It's, 
maybe that uh, supports the, the qualitative uh, element here. There's no article, but I, that's not what I'm basing it on. It's just, just uh, rather plain from the context itself. And therefore, the use of the word anthropos, uh, repeated here, is certainly equivalent to the kataanthropon in verse 11. Uh, the uh, gospel that, ha that has been preached by me is not kataanthropon, according to man. Then that is further explained in verse 12 by some other negatives. The variation from the plural to the singular uh, has been variously explained. Uh, Fung, in his commentary, goes so far as to suggest that the plural uh, alludes to the church in Antioch generally. The singular alludes to Barnabas. Uh, I think that's really taking things pretty far. A decision on that question, whether there's a significance in the shift from plural to singular, uh, is often tied to the uh, somewhat related question whether Paul intends a sharp distinction between the prepositions apa and dia. And that's one of the examples that you have in the, um, in the material that you were supposed to read for today. So that um, some commentators will argue that the apa implies the corporate source of the authority, the corporate source of the authority, whereas the dia um, alludes to the single representative instrument, the instrument or agent uh, who would have been sent to implement the, the corporate action so that um, you perceive that there's a group of people here who take an action, some kind of authoritative action to commission someone as an apostle, let's say, and then that uh, order is implemented through one individual, and therefore you might use apa in reference to the source, and this is a plural that follows it, whereas the agent would be the a uh, and a singular. Now, Fung's idea that, that this may allude to uh, Antioch and Barnabas, I think is an unusual interpretation. What you normally find is that Paul is saying, look, uh, I didn't get my authority from the 12, or at least from the three, you know, Peter, James, and John. Uh, nor was that uh, power granted to me through an intermediary, whoever this might be. <clears throat> whether Peter or somebody else. As you look at the commentators, when they discuss the uh, problem about um, the two prepositions, you find that, especially some of the older commentators, for example, Ellicott, who wrote uh, some very um, you know, high-powered linguistic, philological kinds of uh, commentaries on uh, several of Paul's letters. Uh, he argues for what he calls an accurate use of preposition, prepositions. That, that's an unfortunate way of putting it, uh, because this is not 
matter of accuracy or inaccuracy. Um, but, you know, Ellicott, as many others, would perceive that a standard or formal distinction is the right way of saying it. And if you do not follow it, then it becomes substandard or, or not as uh, refined or not as useful, whatever. And uh, things don't work out quite that way. Uh, Bruce, I think wisely, uh, resists pressing the distinction too far, although he does not you know, totally deny it. And um, I, I decided to take that example and, and go through that in uh, more detail in the, um, in the uh, material, which I didn't give go, go, go your copy here for a second. In, um, by the way, the reason I have this in small print is just to save you money. But I can see that. Um, Beginning with uh, page 29, <clears throat> the third paragraph, I, uh, I point out four arguments uh, that could be brought in favor of a, a uh, clear distinction between Apollo and Dia. Uh, first of all, that there's very little overlap between, uh, between these two prepositions. You know what I'm saying here. If, if you have, for example, uh, the question of um, N and ace, that's, uh, that's a good example of two prepositions whose function overlaps. And so you're much more likely to see a distinction blurred in the case of overlapping prepositions, or other words for that matter, now in the case of two prepositions that are fairly consistently used in distinct contexts. And uh, certainly the, uh, the, uh, our usual translation from and through, I think we instinctively realize you know, those two things are quite clearly different. I'm not saying that there isn't any overlap whatsoever. Uh, in fact, um, well, let's not go into it, but uh, I think you can argue with some reasonableness that because these two prepositions do not overlap significantly, you're less likely to have some kind of blurring of the distinction between the two. Uh, second, the fact that Paul also varies the grammatical number of the noun, anthropon first, anthropo second, can be used, I think, as an argument, as suggesting that, uh, that Paul may be, may be having some kind of distinction in, in uh, his mind. Third, one could argue that the context of the, of the whole argument, chapters one and two, provides uh, a reasonable historical distinction, uh, such as the one that I have just mentioned here, the Jerusalem apostles uh, as a group, and Peter specifically as the agent, perhaps. And uh, finally, the fact that there is a comparable variation uh, in uh, verse uh, 12. You know, I, I keep pointing out the uh, parallels or the connections between verse, verse 1 and verses 11 and 12. And verse 12, you have paralambano, para, and didascomai dia. Now, is that purely rhetorical? 
possibly, but it's, you know, it, it's hard to avoid the, uh, uh, the conclusion that maybe something is going on here. Now I go on, go on to uh, point out that you have to qualify this uh, by stating the positive side of his claim, or when he states the positive side, first you have the negative, not from man nor through a man, and now you have the positive statement of it, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, here there's only one preposition. Why doesn't he say, but from God the Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ, or something like that, if, if he wants to uh, capitalize on the distinction? Um, apparently, the dia in the second clause is meant to cover the whole idea. And so I think you have to allow for the possibility that there's also some kind of semantic neutralization in the first part of the clause. Yeah, right. I, I think it's reasonable. The only point that I'm making here is that here you have some, you, you could view the second clause as linguistic evidence that one preposition could serve double duty. Um, but I think your point is well taken and, and um, I, I think that's uh, quite reasonable. Uh, then I also point out that um, the verse has a clearly emphatic force and, and that stylistic feature may be more important exegetically than the alleged distinction. That is, the use of the second preposition may have been motivated by a desire to extend the denial rather than by a need to specify two aspects of authority. You follow what I'm saying there? Um, we do this all the time. We may say things twice using slightly different wording not because we're trying to distinguish two different aspects, but just to make the point, uh, so you can't repeat it. Uh, so that's another possibility. And I think that even, even if, you, if you buy the distinction, I do think that the emphasis is more important than the distinction anyway. And then the last point here is that um, uh, there's just enough ambiguity in the construction that it would be a mistake to use it as a foundation for something else. In other words, it is one thing to see a semantic distinction because the context as a whole seems to support the idea, but quite another to make a debatable expression the basis for speculating on the historical background or for heavy theologizing. Uh, my, uh, my point here is something that is going to come up in other parts of the course. There are many occasions when uh, modern scholars are debating a certain exegetical point, and uh, they may make a case for a particular distinction or a particular point being made in the verse, but then they go on to build on that distinction. and. Uh, now you begin to run the risk of building inferences that were built on inferences, and, and then you keep you know, going through that process. Again, chapter four that deals with the historical question is uh, very much to the point here. That's part of what I'm thinking about. You see what, it, it has something to do with direction uh, of, of your argumentation, or at least the primary direction, because there's always a little bit of circularity involved. But as I said, it's one thing for you to say, aha, on the basis of everything that we read in chapters one and two, it, it makes sense 
to see this kind of a picture. And then you go to verse 1, and then this possible distinction makes sense with that general picture. Okay. But it's something else to go to the clause where you may have a distinction, but it's not absolutely positive. And now, now you begin to do a lot of historical reconstruction based on distinction. And uh, we'll see, I think, quite a few examples of this sort of problem as, uh, as we move on. Uh, you know, Barclay, in his book, uh, talks about this mirror reading business. And uh, one of the, the points he makes is in, is in that chapter, maybe it's in the article uh, that he wrote on, on the same subject, where he takes the, the word pneumaticoi. And he points out that uh, Lugert, uh, you know, many years ago, took this term, which is a little ambiguous. You know, you can take it in more than one way. But that's all he had. And now he builds this wonderful picture of, of some kind of a perfectionist group, Gnostic opposition or whatever. And uh, you see, mirror reading is, is quite OK, I think, if you have you know, fairly explicit propositions. But when you have ambiguous constructions or isolated words, and then you try to build a picture, and now it's not a matter of shedding light on the text so much as you know, creating a, a, a theory about uh, a social structure. That, um, that's trying to do too much, so I'm saying. <clears throat> Any questions on that uh, issue? Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm not there yet. That's OK. Um, Something that I find very, very interesting in this clause is the indirect but no less powerful for that reason. In fact, particularly powerful, perhaps for that very reason. Uh, the indirect affirmation of Christ's deity. Uh, so powerful, in fact, that it almost leaves Paul open to the charge of docetism. Have you thought about that? Paul says, I got my gospel, my authority, not from a man, but from Jesus Christ. Now, if you take that strictly, it seems to be a denial that Jesus was human. At the very least, we have to recognize with burden that the what the phrase clearly asserts, namely, Jesus and the Father sustain one relation to Paul's apostleship. But the syntactical opposition between Jesus and men, or a man, cannot be ignored. And uh, in the same article that I mentioned before by Warfield, uh, Warfield points out that the inversion of the divine names, in contrast to the usual formula, is noteworthy, because this fact is tied to the insertion of that phrase, who raised him from the dead at the end. Um, in other words, you have, you normally have God the Father and, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Here you have through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Uh, the, the inversion of the divine names is tied to the additional phrase. And then, says uh, Warfield, 
the effect of the addition of these last words is to throw the whole emphasis of the clause on Jesus Christ. Even God the Father is defined in relation to him. Yet the whole purpose of the sentence is to assert the divine origin of Paul's apostleship in strong contrast with any possible human derivation of it. Clearly, the phrase Jesus Christ and God the Father denotes something purely divine. It is in effect a Christian periphrasis for God. And in this Christian periphrasis for God, the name of Jesus Christ takes no subordinate place. Now, um, and then more specifically addressing the question of, of the resurrection, uh, why bring it up? Uh, this is to me very important because it may be aware of the fact that um, scholarship on, on the Pauline scholarship is sometimes made a point that Galatians has no resurrection theology, that in contrast to some of the other letters, for example, uh, Christian Becker in his book on, uh, on Paul, um, thinks that Galatians isn't very helpful in um, telling us about Paul's apocalyptic thinking, or eschatological, if you will, although those two words are not quite identical for him. And, it is, and Galatians is useful because there's no resurrection theology. Well, I find that uh, really strange because this is the only passage, as I recall, the only greeting where the resurrection is mentioned here at the very beginning of the letter. And to say that the resurrection is not important to a letter that in contrast to all the other letters begins by pointing out that uh, the Father raised Jesus Christ, I find that very, very strange. So I think at the very least, what this phrase does is to to reflect the significance of, of the doctrine of the resurrection for Paul's theology. Further, it, set, it sets a certain framework for other things that are going to be said. For example, in Galatians 2, uh, 20, uh, the, uh, the life that I now live, I live by faith in, in the Son of uh, God, you know, and so on. The, uh, the notion of, uh, of Christ alive and sustaining him is a reflection again of, of this particular commitment. Possibly also what's going on here is the need to anticipate the objection uh, that he was not one of the original disciples. Uh, in other words, um, you have an emphasis in verses 12 and 16 about the, the fact that Jesus did, was revealed to, to Paul, but the resurrected Jesus. And, um, the, uh, the mentioning of the resurrection at the very beginning, perhaps in an indirect way, anticipates uh, that possible objection. You weren't one of the 12, so how can you be an apostle? Well, the answer is that the resurrected Jesus appeared to me and commissioned me. And, and that witnessing of the resurrection, as you know, is a rather uh, critical issue. Let me just say a little bit about uh, number four here. What is Paul responding to here? If there is an accusation, what is the nature of it? Well, there are several possibilities. For example, maybe people were arguing that Paul was not an apostle at all. And he's responding to that accusation by affirming, yes, I am an apostle. 
or that, well, Paul was sort of an apostle, but uh, his apostleship does not have a divine origin. Or more specifically, that uh, Paul's apostleship, whatever its origin, was mediated through men, namely the twelve, with the implication that he must submit to them. And so here, if, if that's what's going on, then the accusation is, shame on you, Paul, for not submitting. And Paul's response to that is, I don't need to submit because it didn't come to me, not for men. A fourth possibility is that the accusation was this. Paul should have been commissioned by the Twelve, which he certainly was not, since his teaching differs from theirs. And therefore, uh, if that is what the Judaizers were accusing Paul of, that uh, one ought not to take his, uh, his apostleship seriously because he should have received the, com the commission from the Twelve, and it is obvious that he didn't, because if he had received it, then he wouldn't be saying the things he's saying. Now, I think the third possibility is the, uh, the most likely one, and I'll, I can't prove that at this point, but we'll have to bring in other considerations. Um, the Judaizers, I think, were arguing. Paul's apostleship came through the Twelve. Therefore, he ought to submit to them. He is not. The accusation, in other words, is that Paul has become a renegade. And uh, to me, this is fairly important because, obviously, you know, whatever the best re reconstruction may be, uh, we should know that Paul's main affirmation is not so much that he's an apostle, but rather that his office is independent of the Twelve. Cannot lose sight of that. But I think there's a lot to be gained by the possibility. Now, here, what I'm doing, please understand, is historical reconstruction. When I say, I think the accusation was that Paul was a renegade, that he received his apostleship from the Twelve, and now he's turned against it. So that's just a theoretical construct. I think it uh, provides a framework uh, that helps us put all the, the facts together reasonably. Uh, but uh, ultimately, it is the actual facts of the text that, uh, that have to uh, uh, indicate whether that reconstruction is uh, right or wrong.